we're seeing the rise of a phenomenon called astrotourism around the world. Um, people are willing to spend quite a bit of money and travel great distances to go see a, a really pristine night sky. So right away, that the inability to access something at home is spurring people to seek out this kind of a new adventure and saying, well, you know, you should be able to see the stars in the place that you live. Right. Maybe it won't be like going to, you know, the Grand Canyon or one of our international dark sky parks. And, and there's a separate value to that that's worth separately preserving, of course, because those places are you know, very far out of the way and they're, they're going to be easier to maintain the darkness. But there's no reason that we can't roll it back to some extent in our cities. I always hold up Tucson, where I live, as an example of that. I live kind of a, a near the edge of the, the continuously built part of the city, and I can see the Milky Way from my backyard. This is a, a metro area of a million people. We're not doing anything crazy. We're just doing things a little bit differently. On a dark summer night, away from the city lights, with the frogs and the crickets singing their restful vespers all around, you can lean back on the warmth of a sandstone outcropping, or recline in the cool grass of a dark sky reserve, and look up in amazement at the stunning celestial dance high above you. A glorious, restful multitude of stars twinkle and shine with ancient glory. You cannot take your eyes off of the variegated array of light. A meteor streaks by, the Milky Way arcs gracefully from horizon to horizon. It is one of the most stunning experiences in nature, a truly dark, star-filled night sky. In the summer of 2019, I had the privilege of visiting Copper Break State Park here in Texas, located in Quanah, just south of the Oklahoma border. One sight I will not soon forget. As we drove out from the park, crossing a bridge, we stopped. What I saw took my breath away. There, just to my left, the Big Dipper glistened as I'd never seen it before, as each of the stars was backlit by the most pure and silvery light. There it hung, with its scoop pointed downwards like a jewel-plated spoon, hanging between the dark silhouettes of mesquite, willow, and scrub oaks, all of which were alive with the glimmering, dancing troop of fireflies, as if a paparazzi of excited journalists were all snapping pictures of the Dipper itself. I did not want to leave. For me, it was truly a manifestation of the glory of God unlike I'd ever seen it. 
But sadly, this kind of dark sky experience is becoming increasingly more difficult to come by. As cities increasingly grow larger and more populous, the glorious beauty of the night sky is being lost to light pollution. As a result, people are having to travel far away from home to see the stars in all their resplendent glory. Since the dawn of recorded time, we have looked upon the stars for inspiration, for navigation, as a repository of our stories, our songs, and as a means of knowing when to plant crops and when to harvest. The heavens link us together as human beings. The stars we see today are the same stars that were shining over the Acropolis and all the schools where Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato had taught, over the Roman Colosseum where fearsome gladiators dueled to their deaths, and over the ancient city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and buried. When we look at the heavens, as King David of Israel did some 3,000 years ago, they immediately make us wonder about our own place within the cosmos. We behold the splendor of a pristine night sky and wonder, wonder about what it all means and why we are here in the midst of it all. As David wonders, pondering the stars as God's creation, quote, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, end quote. It is crucial for us in this time to not only preserve our night skies, but to pass on the stories, the inherent meaning, value, and history of our night sky to future generations. A love of the stars and a greater awareness of our night skies can also help foster a more community-oriented engagement with our neighbors. The heavens declare the glory of God, and as such, it is a worthwhile effort to seek to preserve our ability to see them. On this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with astronomer and director of public policy for the International Dark Sky Association, Dr. John Barentine. Dr. Barentine shares with us his experiences with the night sky, his love of astronomy, the importance of community, storytelling, and how we can get involved in reducing light pollution right where we live. Dr. John Barentine. I am the Director of Public Policy for the International Dark Sky Association. We're based in Tucson, Arizona, although we are an international, you know, global organization with a a presence in quite a few countries in the world. Uh, But my roots are here, and I have spent most of my life in Arizona. Uh, And it's maybe in that respect no accident that I ended up going into astronomy because that's an important part of our economy and our our sort of uh, science and technology base in Arizona, in part Mm -hmm. due to our good weather through most of the year, if you want to do astronomy from the ground and, um, you know, very dry desert air is conducive to that. So uh, going back to the late 19th century with the founding of Lowell Observatory in northern Arizona, astronomy has been an important part of our state. Uh, And my entry point to that was actually close here to Tucson at a place called Kitt Peak National Observatory, uh, which is about 50 miles or so west of Tucson in the mountains on the Tahana Otham Indian Reservation. And uh, the reason I think I ended up doing what I do is because when I was uh, real little, probably about four or five years old, um, my family and I visited the observatory and I had never seen anything like it before this mountaintop location with all of these telescope domes and some, you know, at the time, some of the most advanced equipment in the world. And it it was just really overwhelming. Mm. 
like my grandparents and I were on that trip. And I remember saying to my grandparents, you know what, I'm going to come back and work here someday. <laughs> and I'm sure they thought at the time, you know, okay, you know, last week you wanted to be a garbage man and next, <laughs> next week you'll want to be a fireman. So right. this, is, this is a, a you know, transient sort of thing. Uh, I ended up doing my undergraduate degree here at the University of Arizona and immediately uh, my first semester I had an opportunity to um, get started working, helping out with some astronomy research at the observatory. And I was already um, working there as a, a docent leading uh, tours. And uh, some of the scientists at the observatory headquarters here in Tucson asked me to come with them on a, uh, what we call an observing run at the telescope in December of my freshman year. And we had a cloudy night during the run. And so I went down to the, the dining hall and, and picked up the phone and I called my grandparents in Phoenix and I said, I kept my promise. I'm working at the observatory tonight. How about that? Um, <laughs> so um, in, in the, the intervening years between then and now, um, I, I worked for Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico for several years including some time spent on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is um, to date is one of the most important um, projects in astronomy that's ever been done. We surveyed a quarter of the night sky over mm. the course of about 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I left there to do a PhD in astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin, which I finished up uh, about seven years ago. And before I left, I knew that I, I probably was not bound for a research career, and that's fine, and I had other interests besides just astronomy. And I was looking for a way to, um, to pull all of that together. And, and that includes government and politics and law. Uh, but also, still at heart, I am an amateur astronomer, and I will mm. always be. And to have the kind of experience that I've had in, in some of the world's darkest places, which is a moving experience if you've never had it, Yes, wanting to share that with other people and maintain the ability of people to see that yeah. is something that's very important to me. And that has what has made this work so ultimately fulfilling. Fantastic. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what my, that's what motivates me. That's what gets me up in the morning. Um, wanting to make sure that other people in the future will have that same kind of experience. Absolutely. That is a, a phenomenal story. And uh, you mentioned the university of Arizona. Um, and as you, probably, I'm sure you know that uh, the Vatican has an observatory there. Um, they sure do. And I just talked to a couple of weeks ago, I just talked to Brother Guy Consolmagno, uh, the mm -hmm. head of the Vatican Observatory, who spends about half the year at uh, UA there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful place, it's a wonderful state, <laughs> as you say, to do mm -hmm. astronomy. You're, you're high up in elevation. Uh, Flagstaff is where Pluto was discovered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love the story of Clyde Tumbaugh, of course, uh, a wheat farmer, I think, in Kansas, who was mm -hmm. making sketches uh, with his homemade telescope. And uh, Lowell says, you want a job? <laughs> he gets on a train, sells everything and goes to the Lowell Observatory and then discovers Pluto uh, near the star in, uh, the Gem in Gemini, Wasat, mm -hmm. uh, transiting by. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty remarkable. So there's, there's a lot of good history. Now, uh, we just put a book together last summer, it just came out. Um, we have a multitude of uh, different Christian backgrounds represented in the book. There's uh, 12, 13 different authors. Uh, we have Catholics, Anglicans, mm -hmm. Presbyterians, we have a Lutheran, non-denominational people. We focused on uh, a scripture, Psalm 19. But I find, uh, you know, with the book that we just did, that, that, that the universe itself 
really has this uh, seems like this built in thing that, that, that enables us to connect and communicate with one another. Unlike anything else that we have, it seems like, you know, this is like our, the, the global Smithsonian um, and we are kind of losing it in this time uh, due to the, the, the problem of light pollution. We, I joked with a friend of mine the other day that we were probably, if somebody were to write a history of our culture's engagement with the night sky, they would be fascinated by the fact that we know so much about deep space, but know little or nothing about the stars and constellations in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. You're, you're right about that. Although, you know, looking at the sweep of history, the night sky has featured in our culture as long as we have records about that. And of course we have reason to believe that it was significant even in times before that. Mm. Uh, But what I think has taken place particularly in the last um, little less than a century, um, you know, since the, the, the real widespread proliferation of electric light has been a gradual decoupling of humanity from that mm. night sky simply because uh, due to light pollution, it's no longer immediate. And so fewer people have regular access to it. And um, I, I think that if we don't value something, we won't want to protect it. And if we don't experience it, we probably won't value it. Mm. And so if you follow that chain, it's le- it's led from, you know, all this light that was deployed in the early 20th century was about modernization and signs of progress and it enabled a lot of things by extending the length of the day but on the other hand it took something away from us that was rooted in in tens or hundreds of thousands of years of of the human experience Uh, and um, we're just beginning to understand what that loss really means talking about our modern culture and and astronomy and this idea and the mission of, of one of the primary missions of your organization is as you say to preserve um, night sky. So IDA has been around since what, 1988? Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so describe a little bit about how the organization, how you see, how, how you guys have gone about um, trying to preserve these dark areas. What's, what's behind that? And uh, how many, how many areas are currently sort of under the, the, the moniker of, of being preserved at, at, at this time? How do you guys uh, go and find these things and, and, and make these things happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, to, to highly condense our origin story, um, you're right about the date. It was 1988. It was here in Tucson, and we were founded by two astronomers. One was a professional who was at that time the director of Kitt Peak National Observatory, and the other was an amateur who uh, professionally was a uh, physician, uh, but was uh, very into astronomy as a hobby. And they knew each other in their, their overlapping professional circles, and they both lamented how uh, gradually the night sky over Tucson here was getting brighter. Mm. But the, the vision that they had was that this was not a Tucson problem, that this was a world problem. And that if they just set up an organization to address the issue here locally in Arizona, they would be missing the bigger problem that really touches most parts of the world now. So that's the, that's where we began. Mm. And our approach from the very beginning has been, to build bridges, uh, you know, not to, to tear them down, not to attack people, not to uh, run right to the courts for remedies for everything, but mm. to educate, to encourage, to inspire uh, uh, solutions to the problem. And that is not only in the, the world of, you know, 
everyday people in the communities where they live, educating them about the problem of light pollution and you know what are the solutions, what can we do about it, talking to their decision makers, talking to the outdoor lighting manufacturing industry, which has mm. been a, a priority from the beginning. And that, that has been somewhat um, controversial in our constituency uh, in a set, thinking that you know, the, the, the outdoor lighting industry is the source of the problem. Mm. Um, we don't necessarily see it that way. We see them as potential partners in solving this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of course, you know, there are many legitimate needs that humans have for the use of artificial light at night and they will continue to have absolutely them, right. So we want to provide for that in a reasonable way that finds the appropriate balance between uh, you know, the, the commerce and safety and all of the things that are related to lighting up outdoor spaces at night, but also protecting the nighttime environment in the night sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, our flagship program in that regard is called International Dark Sky Places. And you kind of alluded to that as uh, uh, in terms of the, the number of places in the world that have uh, achieved some recognition for pursuing these goals. And in a little less than 20 years of the existence of that program, we're now up to about 140 designated places in the world. It's definitely on the rise. Attention to this issue is certainly on the rise. Uh, you see more media stories about it every year. Um, but it is a, a slow and incremental uphill battle. Uh, you know, we're, we're up against a world that um, consumes more of everything all the time. You know, some of what we do touches on environmental concerns that go back and forth according to the prevailing political view at the, at the time. Um, and, you know, we, we run the risk of having the message being lost in the noise that we are all bombarded with every day. Mm. So our, our tasks is, uh, um, among others, are how to remain relevant, how to position this issue in a way that it resonates with people. And then the most important piece is how to move from simple awareness to a, a desire for change which then we think uh, in turn spurs people to action. During our conversation, I asked Dr. Barentine what role people of faith play in the IDA's community outreach. You know, we serve a a really broad constituency, and that includes people of faith. Mm -hmm. And they have told us repeatedly in the time that I've been with the organization about how that is important to them and how they find a connection to dark skies. Uh, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing. If it if it's something that motivates people to want to protect this resource because what they see in it is a manifestation of creation, mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. And I think that's that's worth celebrating. It's part of what we do in a way. Amen. I had started and gotten uh, most of the way through a wonderful book. And I think it came from either Sarah recommended it to me, my friend who works at Sarah, who does uh, Saving Our Stars, or I, I saw it, maybe I saw it through IDA, but it's a book by Paul Bogard. Maybe you're mm-hmm. familiar with it called The End of Night. Yes. Uh, searching for natural darkness in an age of artificial light. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yes, I am. And and the author. Okay. So you know Paul. Um, oh, he's a good friend of ours. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Uh-huh. Well, he writes, uh, Paul covers uh, a bit uh, in the early chapters uh, by the French gentleman by the name of Francois Jose, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm. but uh, Francois designs lighting for the city of Paris, and he goes into a great deal of detail about the care in which he, among other things, was designing the lighting for, for Notre Dame uh, and for the cities and things like that. But it, it, it does a wonderful job of outlining 
the specificity of the importance of planning and how, how civic uh, cities can, can organize their lighting in such a way. It's a, it's a very deliberate, obviously, uh, process that, that goes into it, but there is architecture and intent in how we design light. So, John, why do you think, why do you think people are, what, what is generally, do you think, you said it earlier, uh, do you think that the problem with light pollution is just um, an ignorance about the night sky or sort of an apathy? A majority of people just aren't experiencing dark skies. What do you think is finally underlying our, our, the, the way cities lightings are, are designed? Is it just, what, what are the factors do you think that goes into that? Mm-hmm. I think some of it is, is certainly what you identified there. It is a sense of apathy. I talk to people in my line of work in lots of cities and uh, sometimes the the sentiment is well you know of course you can't see the stars in our city that's that's just how life in the big city is uh which i think is um Mm -hmm. um, a manifestation of what is sometimes called shifting baseline syndrome where if you gradually make a change to something in the environment that people will adapt to it uh, so readily that you know the 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 calendar page turns and and people wonder whether there was ever anything ever different about whatever the the resources right they they just don't see the change happening around them, but I also talk to people who say, you know I remember when I was a kid growing up in the nineteen fifties in uh, you know somewhere in in rural heartland America and how wonderful of the night sky was and you could just walk right out the back door at night and see that and I just you know it just kind of hit me the other day we don't have that anymore and and in that case they only get it as the result of literal decades of um of, of incremental change and when their attention is brought back to it then it dawns on them something here has fundamentally shifted so we, we do see quite a bit of that. The, the challenge is, again, in the times in which we live, as crazy as they are, um, things are moving quickly. Technology is moving quickly. It's enabling us to do all kinds of wonderful things, but we're finding that there are, unfortunately, some downsides to that at times. Um, we're asked to be thinking about many things at once. We're told that they all have such great import. How do we ensure that the the message about the night and its value is not lost in all of this? That's the, the, I think the single biggest challenge that we have in front of us is simply pushing back a bit against that apathy yeah, and saying, well, you know, you should be able to see the stars in the place that you live. Right. Maybe it won't be like going to, you know, the Grand Canyon or one of our international dark sky parks. And, and there's a separate value to that that's worth separately preserving of course because those places are you know very far out of the way and they're they're going to be easier to maintain the darkness but there's no reason that we can't roll it back to some extent in our cities Mm. Uh, and i always hold up tucson where i live as an example of that i live kind of a, a near the edge of the the continuously built part of the city and i can see the milky way from my backyard wow this is a metro area of a million people right we're not doing anything crazy. We're just doing things a little bit differently. And that's mm. how I'm trying to get people to think about yeah. their use of light is just think a little differently. Right. It's not a, uh, we not, we have to, 
it's not a complete and total paradigm shift like heliocentrism uh, right, uh, to right. geocentrism to heliocentrism. This is, as the gradual steps led us into this direction, the gradual steps can lead us back out into what once was, um, if we just think it. But, but what you bring to mind, John, it seems like we are a culture that assumes uh, all that organization will take care of it or the government will take care of it or, or they'll deal with it. Uh, me as an individual, I'm powerless in such mm-hmm. a corporate, in such a corporate culture of, of, as you said earlier, lighting industry. How can I do anything to impact that or, or government or how can I do anything to impact that? Certainly there are laws in place that have to say lights and this and this and this. But, but really, IDA is, has shown me too that, that really in the individual level at, at community levels, is where really this stuff begins to happen. You do have a significant import as an individual to, to make a step in, in the direction of, of returning dark skies to our culture, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Daniel, you're, you're, you're right on target with that sense that people feel sort of paralysis about a lot mm. of, of issues, not just this one. Um, right. I think some of our reticence about dealing with the climate change issue, for example, is simple paralysis. It's a sense of, oh, this is overwhelming us too quickly. And, and what I do as an individual is just to drop in the bucket. How could that make a difference? Right. About uh, the light pollution issue specifically, a lot of times that I'm giving public presentations, I always put something in there anticipating the question because I get it so often is people say, well, what, what can I possibly do to make this difference? And I say, do you have a porch light on your house? everybody has a porch light or something similar. And I said, if you, if you look at that porch light and you ask some simple questions about its, its function and its utility and uh, you know, is it serving the, the purpose you might find, for example, that it's far too bright relative to what is really needed or that, you know, it's just blasting light in all directions, yeah. including into the eyes of people that are trying to to see the step in front of your front door so they don't trip over it. Right. But you <laughs> sort of disadvantage them by putting this light in their eyes instead of putting it on the step. These yeah. little things that you gradually, you, you see the realization dawning. And I said, you know, if everybody dealt with their porch light and carried that mentality then into the places that they work, for example, so business owners are asking the same questions. What is that light for? Why is it on all night? Et cetera that builds up into a collective action that really truly does make a difference. Yeah. I mean, my speaking of porch lights, I have a uh, low amber led. Uh, I wouldn't call them Christmas lights, but they are a string mm-hmm. of uh, amber led uh, string lights hanging on my pergola over my porch. And um, even when my neighbor's lights are off, uh, I can leave that on and still see, I live in a pretty dark sky area. Um, mm-hmm. fortunately I can see the Milky Way from my backyard too, but the amber lighting for me, it was just a string of lights. It was 20 bucks. I hang it on my pergola in a nice decorative sort of way. And it totally illuminates the porch, uh, without, uh, unnecessarily sending light up into the heavens. And, um, it's, uh, uh, my friend Sarah turned me on to amber lighting and I was like, Oh, this is really great. So mm-hmm. that's, that is indeed one step. One of the things I wanted to, to address as well in terms of, uh, your expertise, because I just uh, I just got your book. I just found out about your your book. There's actually two books that you have. Um, one of them is on the lost uh, lost constellations. Um, and you say I was watching one of your videos this morning. You say in part that 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 the lost the the lost aspect, these lost star constellations and stories, have something in effect to do with uh, the ever encroaching uh, idea, the, the concept of light pollution that we have that we're fighting with. 
do you think, it seems to me that, that we're fighting also another war, if you will, another front, where we are no longer, you know, the ancient cultures were very, were very much storytellers, and they, they had a, a longstanding oral tradition where they would exchange stories. I mean, written communication was rare, but you go all the way back to, to Mesopotamia and, and, and before the Greeks and the Romans, there was a, a, tr- a tremendous oral tradition in storytelling, and the stars were sort of the, the ancient repository of our stories. Uh, but now it seems like we're a culture of, uh, of story receivers. We receive stories from Hollywood, and we're very familiar with the stories that come to us from our screens. But, but we ourselves don't tell I mean, I can't, I can remember when I was a kid that, you know, uh, my parents would tell me stories, but the idea of your grandparents or your ancestors telling you stories, uh, reading to you, you know, being, being people that not just receive stories, but create stories and, and make stories. Do you think that there's something lost in, in the relationship to the, to the skies in, in terms of our ability or the way in which we receive narratives or think about narratives in general? I do. You're, you're correct about the, the storytelling aspect of human culture and for how, you know, what a, a large part of that lengthy history and prehistory, that was an oral tradition. And in certain societies still to this day in the world, the oral tradition is very powerful and a, a, a very omnipresent part of their culture. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't see how that we have not lost something as part of the process. If you look at, at the, the constellations that were created by ancient cultures, even here, just looking at the Western tradition, um, you know, you see recurrent themes that are still in our storytelling today. So you say, you know, we, yes. we're sort of, we receive stories from Hollywood, but if you look at the core of a lot of those stories that you see in film or uh, in, in television, et cetera, the, 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 the main themes in many respects are as old as time. Yes. Absolutely. They say there's nothing new under the sun, right? Because uh, <laughs> there's, they're, they're, they're recycling these themes in their storytelling. And why do they do that? Because it speaks centrally to our human experience. Absolutely. And it's something that transcends time and place and culture and all of that. And if, and then if you look at the, the types of figures that were placed in the night sky by those ancient cultures, they were broadcasting all of their their hopes and their fears and their aspirations and what it meant to be human to them onto the night sky. We're, mm. you know, we're really good at finding patterns and things. And so picking yeah. out constellations is easy. It's not surprising that what we did was we impressed humanity onto the night sky. And and we are we are losing something in that it doesn't have the immediacy that it once did. And therefore, it, it might not inspire people to create new things the way that it once did. Yeah, and I think uh, part of, I think, one of the absolutely most important aspects of storytelling, uh, especially in the ancient world, is when, when you, in an oral culture, uh, participated in the exchange of stories, you did so incarnationally with people. And yes. now... Here we are, disembodied, <laughs> talking through the electronic medium, which is amazing. But the ancestral sort of sitting around the campfire, orally telling stories to one another in person is also something that we've lost. I've, I've hosted uh, uh, star parties here at my barn. I live in a barn apartment out in uh, rural Texas. It's really cool. I have a 10-inch Dobsonian telescope. And I've had people out to, to look at the stars. And we have dinner and we chat. 
but it's so wonderful, John, to, to have people with you around a telescope telling stories. Uh, it's, it's, it sticks with you. It, it really does. And I think when we lose that incarnational aspect of our storytelling, I think that does in some way, it's not just a technological problem with artificial lighting. It, it also is a way in which we don't hear stories from grandma or grandpa or mom and dad. Now we hear stories from Netflix and, and the television and, and we're satisfied with that. But in something that we, as you say earlier, we we've lost something in the exchange of what it means to be human when we're not telling stories to one another in person. And I think that's in a, in a, in an, in what I understand, that's that seems to be just as much an integral part of correcting this dark sky and the, the light pollution issue is to to get into community again in order to make these changes, right? Yeah, Daniel, and, and everything you just said is, I think, is spot on. To that, I would add, I sense increasingly that there is a hunger for this among people in in cultures yes. all over, you know, mm-hmm. more so here in the West or in developed parts of the world uh, mm-hmm. where the night sky has been lost largely because yeah. of light pollution. We're seeing the rise of a phenomenon called astrotourism around the world mm. where um, people are willing to spend quite a bit of money and travel great distances to go see a, a really pristine night sky. Yeah. Uh, so right away that the inability to access something at home is spurring people to seek out this kind of a new adventure, maybe somewhere else. And we hope that the result of that is they don't lose sight of the fact that there's still a, a an issue to be dealt with in those places where they live and that they will want to make those changes mm. so that we don't sort of romanticize the darkness and say, well, it's being protected somewhere else in the world. That's good enough. Yeah. Um, but, but to that, I would, I'd briefly add also um, what I'm finding in talking to people that are engaged in that industry in providing these services through astrotourism is that um, they're, they're getting feedback from people that come to these events and go on these tours, that they really appreciate having a guide, having somebody mm-hmm. to interpret for them what they're seeing to tell yeah. them what it means yeah. to tell the stories uh, you know, that are associated with the lore of the night sky. And that's a good opportunity also in working with those people to insert a message into that, that says, you know, we don't have to accept that this has been lost in certain parts of the world. This is a, an eminently reversible problem. Once we take the decision to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, th- so you're finding this this idea in astro that's fascinating, John, because I I knew only a little bit about astrotourism, but I the, the very point that you make is is exactly what I was thinking. This idea that we gravitate toward the guide in person. We go out to a dark sky park in Arizona, New Mexico, and we have uh, a gentleman who's very familiar with the star lore, maybe maybe the star lore of the Native Americans that were in that in that culture and time period. But this is absolutely fascinating to people. I uh, I wish I could have gone, but last year. Um, and as you probably know, the Grand Canyon has its annual star party, um, but it's packed. I mean, they, they have people from all over the planet that are shoulder to shoulder in the auditorium and they have people with the telescopes and people are out there all night long looking at things and asking astronomers questions and, and wanting to know more about, you know, it's interesting too, because as, as I'm sure you know, there's, there seems to be a difference between the way we talk about the universe today and the way the ancients talked about it. So, you know, I mean, as, as you know, the, the, the stars have names. And um, I think it was uh, 
it was one of the naturalists from the 19th century, uh, Walden, uh, what's his name? Thoreau. I think it Thoreau. was Thoreau mm-hmm. who said, there's not a man in the street who knows a star in the sky. Mm-hmm. I think it was Thoreau. It, it may have been uh, somebody else, but um, the, the idea that, that, that a star, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his Narnia Chronicles, that for us moderns, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. Um, that, that, that we talk about stars and astronomy in terms of very reductionistic terms, very scientific terms, a, a sort of a language that, that alienates culture. The, the scientific language can be, it's fascinating. I'm not putting it down. It just seems to be the dominant discourse. If you start talking about constellations, people look at you cross-eyed with a raised eyebrow going, what are you, some sort of spiritualist or mystic? What are you getting into all these constellation <laughs> stories? This doesn't tell me anything. Um, but it, but it's almost like the, the, the stories are often denigrated uh, to the sort of back closet shame of a previously ignorant Bronze Age culture of people who didn't know anything about them. And now we know all about the plasma and carbon. So aren't we great? But but as you say, John, I think I think people are flocking to movies and TV because we are starved for a narrative and we are starved for narratives that mean something beyond just the matter of which it is made. Do you find, as you're with your science background, do you find that the the scientific nomenclature can can be alienating to people and intimidating to some degree, or or what do you think? Well, yes and no. Um, you mentioned the Grand Canyon Star Party, and that's a, an event that I've been at every year for the past several. Um, oh, it's awesome! It, it it really is. It's uh, it it reminds me of, or makes me think of, uh, you know, our our past experience with the night sky if you think back into deep time and prehistory and you know what did people do at night they sat around the campfire and told stories because there wasn't a lot else to do and and that's probably the origin of a a lot of the the lore of of the night sky and so it it reminds me of that in the sense that it's a similar gathering of people who come together Mm. uh and and i've noticed in um venues like that where you have people that are, they're coming there voluntarily they they they're interested enough that they want to know more you kind of have this this captive audience they're ready to hear whatever you have to say and having participated in star parties and events like that for years and years i would say that people are about equally interested in the science of what you're showing them as they are in the folklore or the storytelling or, or the human element, whatever you want to call it. That's very good to hear. Yeah, really. I mean, they, they, they do want to know what they're looking at. If you show them something through a telescope, they, they're genuinely interested in to a, to a point of knowing more about things scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we also at the Grand Canyon Star Party, we do what are called constellation tours. Yeah. Where one of the volunteers will, will run off with a green laser pointer, which is great because as long as you don't point it at airplanes you're good (laughs) point it up in the night sky yeah and and it's a very focused beam so people around you can see exactly what you're pointing at and i've done some of those constellation tours i'll have 50 people standing around me and they are eating out of my hand they are hanging on every word because i'm telling them i'm not talking science now i'm i'm telling them the stories yeah you know for example i i do one and the timing on this is great because it's in june and you have certain constellations up in the northern hemisphere at that time, right? And I do one that's all based around the the Greek myth of the labors of Hercules. Yeah, one of my favorite constellations. He's got his leg lifted over the head of Draco, the dragon, right? And and there actually at that time there are about half a dozen 
uh, constellations that are up that relate in some way to the, that big, broad, epic story about Hercules. And I'm going from one to the next and telling them, you know, in, in, in this episode, Hercules did this. And look over there, there's the lion that he, he you know, clubbed to death. <laughs> yeah. You know, here's, right. here's, the, here's the monster that he fought over here. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, it's like I've expanded their universe by telling them the story. And to think that at one time in that particular culture, everybody would have known about that. Everybody yes. would have been able to find those things. Right. And how, how different the world is now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. And I'm not saying that, uh, that I'm not faulting science or I'm not saying that it's bad to know what stars are made of. I mean, we have a whole discipline. I'm not, I'm not denigrating it. But it was just interesting to see that I think a lot of people think, you know, maybe uh, certainly wrongly that, that, that science, that the triumph of science means that we can put the myths to bed. But as you're explaining... Um, people still want to know the, the, the human side of uh, where these came from. What were the people, what were our forebears believing and thinking about these things? And these, as you said earlier, I believe that this is a, that the skies tie us together as a, as a human culture. Um, they resonate with us. We want to know more than what we're made of. It's like getting to know your neighbor and saying, well, I know John, he's, he's just uh, got this much carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen in his body. I know what he's all about, right? No, no, there's more to your life than just what you're made of. And it seems like yeah. people are catching on to this idea that, that it's a very ancient idea um, that the stars are more than what they're made of, that they are here for us, uh, it seems, to, to look upon, to, to gaze, to study. And uh, I just did an interview a while back with uh, a planetary astronomer who who makes the case that our our Earth is uniquely positioned in the Milky Way to do mm -hmm. astronomy because we could have been in a dustier mm -hmm. lane of of the Milky Way and not seen anything, but we seem to have a, a front row seat for good mm -hmm. stuff, good observation. In when you tell people these things, what what do you what do you find? Uh, how do you encourage people to? When people walk away from something like the Grand Canyon experience, uh, what, what, what's some basic advice that you give them to, to carry on the, the wonder and the awe that they've obviously experienced, some of them, many of them for the first time? How do they keep that going when they leave the canyon and go back to their uh, big cities? Well, of course, um, Daniel, that's what we hope that they take away from the experience of going to a place like the Grand Canyon or any of the other international dark sky parks mm. uh, is that you know, there, there's a whole universe out there. There are places in the world that the view of that universe is sort of unimpeded by light pollution. Not to say that, you know, we can necessarily bring that back to everywhere on earth, but that we could certainly make improvements. Um, part of what they will see too, when they're at, at one of the parks is they, they will see lighting. They'll see outdoor lighting. You know, we, we need it in order to be able to get around safely sure, uh, and the like. But what they will see is a level of quality in the nature of that outdoor lighting that we hope is something that draws their attention to it, that it's yeah. so different from what they experience. Mm -hmm. And so if you're at the Grand Canyon and you're walking along the South Rim Trail by the village, they've got, you know, beautiful, fairly new lighting that's been installed uh, along the, the Rim Trail um, absolutely more than adequate to see where you're going. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, that trail runs right along the rim. Like you, you wouldn't want to necessarily walk through there if it was dark. 
uh, you know, truly dark. Right. Uh, but you, you see exactly <laughs> where the edge of the trail is, all of that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not shining in your face. And it's back to the idea that this should be a no-brainer, right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes people will say to the park staff, you know, why it's so relatively dim. You know, why aren't the lights brighter? And the question is, is do they need to be brighter? What good would it do if half that light were shining in your face and not on the trail? Right. So what I hope that they take away is not only the, the, the awe of the experience of the star party, but they look at the, the context. They look at the setting for the star party. And what they take away is a sense of, well, you know, why can't we have this where I live? Mm. Why can't my neighborhood look like this? If it's again, it's about getting people not not telling them the messages to turn the lights off. That's never been our message to them. Right. You're not anti-lighting, night lighting. No, no, no. But we think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of carelessness in the application of light. And if people think differently about it, that we'll all get a better outcome. And that's the what I think that they can take away and bring home and start to hopefully apply in the places where they live. Beautiful. I mean, so you're modeling an aesthetic. I mean, that's, that's what these star parties do, especially at the Grand Canyon. I mean, if there's a, a, a pinnacle of, of star party, uh, of star parties of star parties, it's, it's the one at the Grand right. Canyon. But there are several all over the country, of course, oh, sure. local yeah. uh, organized by local organizations, of course. I mean, um, but the, the Southwest is, is a premier spot um, because of the, the arid, dry air and the mostly clear skies throughout the year. Uh, Texas, we fight humidity and thunderstorms and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you, you want to, you're, you're trying to model an aesthetic that recaptures community, recaptures storytelling, recaptures the wonder and the awe. Uh, my friend, Sarah, that I keep mentioning, uh, she does, uh, as you know, savingourstars.org. Uh, she's one individual. She runs it by herself, completely nonprofit, um, just an awareness of how you can make uh, your community more night sky friendly. She does a wonderful job. She's got a Twitter site. She's got a website. Uh, I actually helped make a promo video for her, uh, but she's one person doing what you hope she's caught the vision, if you will, of mm-hmm. what the IDA does is that you as an individual can make a concerted effort and difference right where you are just by changing your porch light or you know, talking to, if, if a new neighborhood is going up like they are all over me, <laughs> you go talk to the developers about installing uh, lighting for, for the homes and things like this. Um, John, we, I want to wrap up here, but I want to give you some time to talk about your book. Uh, I just got your book. Uh, I wish I knew about it beforehand, but I'm so looking forward to reading it. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what the project was and um, some of your own favorite stories behind the constellations. I think that would be a wonderful human touch to, to what we've been talking about. Why don't you give us a little bit of background and, and what you enjoy about what you've researched? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the books are about constellations that used to appear on star maps. And I limited that to the Western tradition. There's a strong tie into modern science uh, as a result, but there, you know, every culture in the world has had its own lore of the night sky. So I'm not, yeah, at all diminishing the value of that, but because of the tie into the the way the modern astronomical community defines the constellations, and they they are defined in a particular way, so I restricted it to that. Uh, but it's a it's a project that got started literally the week after I defended my PhD, because all of a sudden 
you know, you, you've been so laser focused on something for several years and it's, it's suddenly you, it's not entirely gone, but it's like a burden right. that's lifted off of you. So I'm looking for something to do. Yeah. And I'd had this in mind for several years because I, I was surprised to find that there wasn't a real deep uh, history of this uh, in print, at least that I could find. And um, in short, it turns out that for a long time in the Western tradition in Europe and to a certain extent, North America, that it was kind of the wild west that, you know, we inherited a number of constellations from the ancient Greeks who got them by way of uh, the Egyptians who got them from the Mesopotamians ultimately. Mm -hmm. uh, but they only saw the Northern part of the night sky because right. of their geographic location. So they, they right. didn't know about the Southern night sky. And then when the European explorers ventured into the, the Southern hemisphere for the first time, they were confronted with, stars that they didn't know mm. and so they 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 filled that space on their maps in part for navigational reasons mm. so now there was mm -hmm. this wave during sort of the, the the late renaissance to sort of the enlightenment where people were beginning to fill in the rest of the, the sky yeah but there was no um there wasn't any sort of overarching definition of what a constellation was or who got to decide what it was so yes. it really came down to if you were good at selling maps and you wanted to fill in some of these spaces, you could pretty much put whatever you wanted in. Mm. That, that didn't get ultimately resolved until the um, early 20th century. Right. So if you pick up a star map today, you will find exactly 88 constellations on it. And those were decided in the 1920s by the world's professional astronomers after they came together to form a sort of a professional society after World War I. So that, just briefly, that modern designation from the 20th century of constellation, would it be proper to imagine as it being somewhat of a geographic, like a, like a county or a city political boundary designation only projected onto the sky? Would that be accurate? That's, that's exactly right, Daniel. It's it, a constellation as defined by modern astronomers is not a group of stars that makes a figure. It is a, a region of the night sky with very clearly delineated boundaries. Okay. And so, so, but within that, the way in, so within that county, uh, those, those boundary lines, the county of the sky, if you will, the, the courthouse is the main constellation, the main star grouping, correct? They're named after the main ancient star groupings. Yes, they they are. And that is a, a, a bit of a, a nod to the tradition of history. So when Got the it. astronomers decided on the on how to partition the sky into these distinct regions, they largely respected the the history and the naming of those regions. But what they had to decide on was how many would there be, which of them that appeared on the maps in the 19th century were they going to keep and which were they going to discard? Got it. And in the Got process, it. about 40 or so figures were discarded. They mm. were not, not given official recognition at that point. And that became the basis of the project was trying to track all of these down and find out you know, where, when were they invented and by whom and what did they represent and try to get at maybe why they didn't make the cut in the 1920s. Mm. Interesting. And so this was, this was all sort of, compiled together the international astronomical union came up with this is that correct is that the that's that's correct right they're sort of the self-appointed arbiters of what is and is not official in the night sky okay and um so with that in mind 
I, I just have just an aside here. I remember for the longest time before I got interested, really interested in astronomy as a, as a lay astronomer, I have no science uh, background, but as a lay astronomer for the longest time, I used to think as a kid that the, the, the Pleiades were, were the little dipper because <laughs> it, it looks like a little dipper, right? But it's, it's not. Um, but between the Pleiades and uh, the Big Dipper, things that people can recognize, you know, seasonally, the Dipper in the Northern Hemisphere is always visible. Pleiades more in the summer, um, winter, and, and, and early spring um, are asterisms. Can you uh, unpack a little bit about what an asterism is in relation to a constellation um, as it was understood in the ancient world uh, as yeah. a pattern of stars? Yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a great question, and it doesn't have a, a, an exactly precise answer. Ah, but okay. An, an asterism is any group of stars, full stop. That could be as small as a group like the Pleiades that seem to have a little figure. It can be something the size of the Big Dipper. It could be bigger than that. It's it, just any arbitrarily chosen group of stars probably forming some kind of a pattern meets the definition of an asterism. Uh, and the, 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 there's a, a very blurry line separating asterism from constellation. We now refer conventionally to constellations as those 88 defined regions that were decided upon by the IAU. Okay, so that's, a, that's an excellent distinction to keep in mind when you ask somebody, where's the constellation of Leo? <laughs> right and that that has a that has a definition that uh, you know i can i can show you the precise boundaries on a map but I, but if somebody were were talking to me outside under the night sky in the spring and i had my green laser pointer yeah. and they asked me where is leo i would point out the very same set of about eight or nine bright stars that the ancients mm -hmm. defined as leo mm -hmm. you probably hear this a lot i know i do uh, that doesn't look like a lion. <laughs> that doesn't look like fish. <laughs> Where I don't see a scorpion, uh, you know. But I think I think that's 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 just something that when you first start stargazing, you're like, I can't see it. I actually know, and you probably do too. I actually uh, one of the contributors in our book is an astrophysicist. She openly admits she doesn't know anything about constellations. Oh yeah, yeah. and and there's I have a book by a gentleman named uh, Brian Penpraise. I don't know if you know Brian. Um, he said in, in the opening of the book, he went through an astrophysics degree and, and learned nothing about the constellations. So he too wrote a book similar to, to yours, but he just wanted to go back into the lore of everything. Um, but um, but how, how do you, when you hear that question, um, how do you see when you're giving these star talks, do you encounter people that, they, that you're like, well, here's Leo, here's Orion, here's this, here's that, and they, 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 they finally see the star pattern with their own two eyes for the first time? Yes. Yeah. Or, or, or they never do, you know, uh, with, with a very few handful of exceptions. I don't think I've run into anybody who cannot see the, the human figure that Orion is supposed right. to Right. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Right. But, but from there on out. It, You're on it, your own. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, careful and uh, inventive sort of imagination to see in the figures what they're supposed right. to and then you can, you get it, and, and people say, oh, okay, I, I see. What, so what, what's interesting to me about those, those so-called lost constellations is really the reason that they became lost is that, by and large, their stars are not bright, and they just do not make prominent figures. Gotcha. Whereas the, the ancients had the, 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 the entire real estate of the night sky, and they kind of took the best stars to make the patterns, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so in the end, as these map makers in the Enlightenment were, were trying to fill in these spaces between them and, and you know, win a little bit of this glory for themselves, they just ended up picking really faint and uh, unremarkable stars. Mm. And so at the end of the day, when it came time to decide which of these are we going to keep and, and which are we going to cast aside, um, the ones that made the really recognizable patterns are the ones that, that won the contest. Yeah. Everything else got set aside. Right. I just saw, this is not long ago in my continuing ongoing fascination and research that I do. Um, I think it was an ancient Mesopotamia. Well, it must've been ancient Mesopotamia. I don't know what, from what exact era it was, but it was a, um, a petroglyph or it was either a cave painting or a petroglyph or cuneiform. I can't even remember. I saw the image, but it was definitely uh, Orion uh, staring mm-hmm. down the visage of Taurus, the V-shaped mm-hmm. uh, head of the bull. But the, the caption, and I, I, wish I, I wish I had gone back and found this, the caption was saying it was, it was ancient and they weren't exactly sure what it was representing. But if you know your star lore, you're like, my goodness, that's Orion and Taurus. But in the caption, the, the scholars believed that Taurus was not a bull, but was a dragon. Mm-hmm. And it, it made it made me think. I'm like, well, that's the if you know Draco, Draco's head is in the same shape, more or less, as Taurus is. And so mm-hmm. this whole idea of Orion and Taurus uh, reminded me, obviously, of Hercules mm-hmm. and Draco. So you have this strong man versus this creature that seems to be. I mean, you have Ophiuchus and the giant snake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, Cetus. And you have Perseus rescuing Andromeda from the 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 the, the Catos or the Cetus, the sea monster, which is not a whale. Um, but you have this theme in the in the in the heavens of 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 these battles, as you mm-hmm. say, the, the way you explain this. Could you is is that one of the one of the stories that you tell when you do these groups? Would you mind going into that a little bit if you have a minute? Yeah, and um, you know we we talked earlier about uh, how a lot of our storytelling these days is is through the filter of Hollywood or through the filter of media, mm. but that the themes of the stories are largely the same as they were before, right? Everybody loves That's fascinating, the hero, right? Everybody loves the underdog. They want the underdog to win, and a lot of the the uh, stories of mythology um, position the underdog you know that's true in uh, classical antiquity in the greek and roman myths uh yes you had very powerful gods but you you also had surprisingly powerful mortals or maybe people who were half mortal uh in in the the biblical tradition uh, the story that immediately comes to mind is david and goliath right yes right who expects david to win the battle with the slingshot but there he, he does so a lot of the things we see in the in the, the the classical folklore of the night sky are are somewhat like that. The um, the Hercules and the dragon myth uh, is probably in the night sky. Those figures that certainly predates written history. The Mesopotamians referred to Hercules as the kneeler because mm. he looks like he's kneeling he sure near does. the head of the dragon. Right. So before Hercules had that name, he was called the kneeler and. I'm sure there is a, there's an origin to that that's now firmly lost to us simply because it is so far back in time. Right, right. The notion of a, 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 a hero figure taking on a monster, and of course, inevitably, the, the hero wins. That's something that we see in our media today. 
and captivates people and it makes them stand up and cheer, right? Yeah. Well, it's like Beowulf, yeah. you know, you go back to Beowulf or Odysseus. Yeah, right? All throughout history, it's, it's a funny thing that links us with people who lived tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I think it's part of what defines us as human. Yeah. I mean, uh, biblically speaking, I know uh, the constellations get a nod in the book of Amos, in the book of Job. Job. Um, Orion gets mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. Orion, the bear, and the Pleiades. Of course, they're Hebrew words, but modern translators pretty much think that these were the predominant uh, 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 star patterns that the ancients would have been familiar with. Um, but it's interesting for me, you know, the Orion, I, I don't know if you know this, but in Job, the the word, so Orion is the English translation, but in the Hebrew, the word is kasil. And that's a very common Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word for fool. So Job would have heard God say, can you guide the fool, mm. uh, you know, and what, what commentators have said is that they believe that this was sort of a Hebrew pun, if you will, for mm-hmm. the Babylonian God of Marduk, which would mm-hmm. have been Orion, mm-hmm. the predominant man God of the sky. Uh, I mean, that's just one interesting aspect to it. But then the mention of the bear, I mean, if you go back to how, I don't know how, nobody really knows how old the book of Job is, but here in one of the oldest books, people believe it's pre-Abrahamic or maybe Abrahamic in terms of when it actually happened or when it was actually first told. But here in this, and it was obviously an oral tradition before it was put down, but here in this very ancient book, you have Orion, the Pleiades, and the Great Bear mentioned. So these things are, these things are old. I mean, they've yes. been known as, as these things from time immemorial, uh, and it's fascinating. Um, so, John, I, I want to give you some the final word here. Thank you so much for your conversation. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, it's been wonderful. And I want you to give people an opportunity to uh, tell them how they can get more involved um, and tell them all about the IDA website, what they can do, how they can uh, get in touch with you or get in touch with the organization, that kind of thing. Sure. And as we discussed earlier, I mean, I, I think there really is a way for anybody who's listening to this to contribute in a way that's meaningful to helping to solve this problem. Mm. And that, that's as simple as, as starting tonight, step out on your front porch and take a look at your exterior lighting. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, we have a, a really fantastic website, which is darksky.org and dark sky is all one word, mm-hmm. darksky.org. Uh, where you'll find a, a wealth of information about the subject from uh, the science to the advocacy, you know, what people can do, how to talk to your elected officials, uh, you know, any number of, of, of avenues into becoming more involved in this work. But I do stress that there is a, a, a role for anybody. Uh, it's a, an issue that it's, it's nonpartisan. It, it yeah. doesn't divide people. It brings them together. Uh, and that every little act undertaken by somebody to address this problem will help us get closer to the solution. Absolutely. Are you leading? Uh, I know the uh, lockdown has limited your ability to go out and do things, but uh, should things get picked back up again? Do you think Grand Canyon's going to have a star party this year? Well, I just found out about that the other day from the organizers, and because the the time is approaching when we w- you know would would have had it, uh, everything's going to move online this year. 
Oh. So we're going to do it virtually as a series of presentations. And then Ooh. we'll have some live uh, nighttime viewing uh, with cameras through telescopes that's going to be broadcast with wow. experts explaining what you're seeing. So in a way, we'll be able to carry on with it. But out of an abundance of caution, we're just going to move it to the virtual sphere this year. Well, and that may absolutely open it up to people who have not even heard about this. Right. Yes. Um, so will there be, how will that information be disseminated? Can anybody join this? Is there, would there be a cost or? Uh, I, I, I can't speak to the details. Uh, the U.S. National Park Service is putting that together. I would keep an eye on either their web pages or they're particularly good for people that are on Facebook. Their uh, Excellent. Excellent. Facebook page is, okay. is good source for information. All right, so the, the Grand Canyon Star Party is going online, folks. You better take advantage of it. This is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> Not like being there in person, but hey, next best thing. Next best great. thing, right. Next and best we, thing. We, we'll be back in person in the future. I have no doubt about it. Absolutely. That's wonderful. All right, well, that's, that's, thank you so much, John. And uh, give people the um, name of your book and, and where they can, best, best place to get it. Sure. There are, are two parts to the book. The first one is called The Lost Constellations. The second part is called Uncharted Constellations. They are published by Springer uh, in the U.S. So if you look up uh, either of the names, you'll find them. Uh, you can find them on Amazon and some other online booksellers. Fantastic, sir. Uh, and I want to just thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to uh, to chat with us here on Good Heavens. It's been a, a wonderful in insightful conversation, uh, very inspiring, very enlightening for me, uh, very encouraging. I love to talk to people who, who, who know their stars and know their star names and stuff like that. And I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. And uh, so thank you again, John, so much for your time. Thank you for having me on today, Daniel. It was a real pleasure. As a special bonus for this episode, I thought it might be fun to talk about a few of the constellation myths mentioned by Dr. Barentine in our discussion, specifically those of Hercules and Draco, the dragon. The constellation of Draco is what is known as a circumpolar constellation. That is, it never rises or sets, but instead circles the pole star Polaris. Unless you are in a dark sky, Draco is unfortunately nearly invisible from larger metropolitan areas. But under a dark sky, you can, with a little effort, find its triangular head and trace its serpentine-like body twisting back around the pole star. Here is what the National Audubon Society's Field Guide to the Night Sky says of this mythical dragon. Quote, Draco has stood for all the dragons of mythology, from Tiamat of the Sumerians to the monster slain by St. George. In all the myths, the dragon symbolizes anarchy and chaos. Draco's origins probably rest with the ancient story of the Babylonian goddess Tiamat, who found herself challenged by newer gods. She created fearsome monsters to help her and, in fact, turned herself into a dragon. The hero, Marduk, defeated her by commanding the strong winds to blow in the dragon's mouth, splitting her body. One half of Tiamat then became the sky, and the other half the earth. From that story, the Greeks derived their myth of the battle of the ancient titans with the newer gods of Olympus. In the conflict, a dragon attacked Athena. She grabbed the creature and flung it up into the sky, where its body wound around the axis of the world, the celestial North Pole. In other ancient Greek stories, Draco is identified as the dragon slain by Cadmus, 
near the site on which he founded the city of Thebes, or as the dragon that guarded the golden fleece, or the dragon that watched over the golden apples of the Hesperides, the procurement of which was one of the twelve labors of Heracles, the Roman Hercules. To the ancient Indians, Draco was a crocodile. To the Egyptians, a crocodile or a hippopotamus. The constellation has even been identified with a dragon from the Nibelungalit, the German epic retold in Richard Wagner's cycle of the opera's The Ring of the Nibelung. Whatever the myth, the sinuous pattern of this constellation is certainly dragon-like. It winds around the sky close to the celestial North Pole. Because of the precession of the Earth causes Earth's axis, and by extension the celestial poles, to shift in position over time, the star closest to the North Celestial Pole also changes. Today, Polaris is the pole star, but 4,000 years ago, this position was occupied by Draco's alpha star, Thuban. In ancient times, therefore, the heavens truly did appear to revolve around this constellation. Due to its northerly location in most northern latitudes, Draco never sets. It is hard to find, however, under the smoggy and artificially lit conditions that often prevail nowadays. Its head is a boxy group of stars lying north of the bright star Vega. Its long body winds towards Cephas, turns and runs westward between the Big Dipper and Little Dipper, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Draco's tail ends with a star that lies just east of the line between the pointers of the Big Dipper and Polaris. It is the eighth largest constellation in the area. End quote. That section on Draco comes from the National Audubon Society's Field Guide to the Night Sky. But why are legends of a dragon so pervasive in constellation mythology? Why make a rather dim set of stars into a creature that allegedly is only legendary? In October of 1931, Narnian author and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves, describing an after-dinner conversation he had with Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien and another companion, Hugo Dyson. The conversation went long into the wee hours of the morning. In volume two of an anthology of Lewis's personal letters, Lewis's secretary Walter Hooper noted that the topic of their discussion was, quote, Christianity and its relation to myth, end quote. In the letter to Greaves, Lewis writes, quote, What Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I did not mind it at all. Again, that if I met the idea of a god sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying and reviving god, Baldur, Adonis, Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference, that it really happened." End quote. As a Christian who has been enriched and encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, I find Lewis's explanation about myth most compelling. It is not finally that the early Christians were merely borrowing from pagan mythology and creating yet another pagan religion of sorts. 
they were not, as New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado makes clear. The Romans called the first Christians atheists because of their refusal to worship the pagan gods of the empire. But that all the myths were part of what Lewis calls, quote, the story of Christ, end quote, which includes the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament as well as the New Testament. If both the Old and New Testaments are true accounts of the history of God's chosen people, we would expect to find stories in other cultures from the ancient world that would reflect these events to varying degrees, including the idea of a dragon. From the serpent in the Garden of Eden and Leviathan in the Old Testament to the dragon of old and Satan in the New Testament, the dragon stands as a beast entirely opposed to God and man made in God's image. But there is one greater who will eventually crush and defeat the dragon. Consider the tales behind the constellation of Hercules, for example, the Kneeler, as he was known in ancient times. In the constellation, it appears Hercules is down on one knee, with his other leg and foot poised right over the head of Draco. The constellation represents one of the twelve labors of Hercules, the taking of the golden apples from the Garden of the Hesperides, guarded by Ladon, the serpent. Here's a section from Dr. Barentine's book, The Lost Constellations, on the myths of Hercules. Quote, Hercules entered the garden and was confronted by Ladon, the serpent guardian of the apples. He slew Ladon and departed with the objects of his quest. Apollonius Rhodius described the aftermath in the Argonautica. Then, like raging hounds, the Argonauts rushed to search for a spring, for besides their suffering and anguish, a parching thirst lay upon them. And not in vain did they wander, but they came to the sacred plain where Ladon, the serpent of the land, till yesterday, kept watch over the golden apples in the garden of Atlas. And all around the nymphs, the Hesperides, were busied, chanting their lovely song. But at that time, stricken by Heracles, he lay fallen by the trunk of the apple tree. Only the tip of his tail was still writhing, but from his head down his dark spine he lay lifeless. And where the arrows had left in his blood the bitter gall of the Lernaean Hydra, flies withered and died over the festering wounds. And close at hand the Hesperides, their white arms flung over their golden heads, lamented shrilly. And the heroes drew near suddenly, but the maidens, at their quick approach, at once became dust and earth where they stood. End quote. And there are some parallels to the Christian scriptures, a garden with a serpent, the defeat of the great serpent by Christ himself as prophesied in the garden where we read that the seed of the woman, who is God incarnate, Jesus, born of a virgin, would one day bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who kneels and prays in the garden of Gethsemane before his trial and execution. Jesus defeats death, crushing the heads of Leviathan, the serpent, the dragon of old through his own death and resurrection. And so it is no surprise for me as a Christian to find the stars filled with stories of the hero overcoming death, victoriously battling and defeating fearsome creatures, Perseus and Cetus the sea monster, Ophiuchus and the great serpent, Orion and the raging Taurus the bull, 
Hercules and Draco, and Sagittarius the archer healer with his bow and arrow aimed at the heart of Scorpius, the poisonous scorpion. As for me, I conclude that the stars are telling of the glory of God, and through countless generations of ancient cultures telling and retelling their stories of good and evil, of the hero overcoming the monster, I think we see tinctures of what Lewis and Tolkien called the true myth of Christianity. this episode has given you food for thought and encouraged you to consider becoming more communally involved in the effort to preserve the beauty and wonder of our night skies. My sincerest thanks to Dr. John Barentine for sharing his insights and experiences and to the International Dark Sky Association for their efforts and outreach across the world in preserving the night skies. For more information on the IDA or how to find a dark sky preserve near you, you can follow the link in the description below this podcast. Their website is darksky.org. That's darksky, all one word, dot O-R-G. Also, if you're interested in becoming more locally involved in helping to reduce light pollution in your community, you can check out my friend Sarah's website, Saving Our Stars, all together, Dot .org that's savingourstars.org for more valuable tips, resources, and ideas for enjoying the night skies right in your own backyard. Thanks for listening to another episode of Good Heavens, a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit Watchman.org today. For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell.